0: Welcome to Writers on Craft, a show about writing and the creative process. I'm Suzanne Legrand, and today I'm speaking with poet, filmmaker, and community educator, Octaviano Merecias Cuevas. Welcome.
1: Hello, Suzanne. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You do a lot of what you would call language activism. Could you talk about what language activism is and how that's related to you being a trilingual poet?
1: I never considered myself a poet, never introduced myself as a poet, never introduced myself as a writer, just like a person that used to participate in poetry slams with different writing groups, that's it. Then I moved to Portland three years ago, I think I saw firsthand how my language was a, uh, slowly a, uh, disappearing in many communities uh, where mixed have migrated. And not only that, but that's a language that is, is three thousand and so and more years old. So the process of colonization in Mexico was first to get rid of the language, right? It happened through many ways. Whether it is language policy, whether it is a uh, you know direct uh, contact and uh, using force and so on, or whether it is more a subtle things like sending a um, teachers to only teach Spanish, sort of like creating the boarding school mentality of get rid of the language, language, and that's how he created this stigma, this psychological sort of internal oppression for a lot of people that they thought you know what to get a job really you have to speak Spanish, to advance in life and to be successful you have to speak Spanish you have to strip down for your own language to move out there in the real world, you know, which is outside of our region. And I always challenge that notion in my writings, I challenge you know, it. When I've tried to tack in Mixtech with people, sort of, they, they, they don't want to talk because, you know, it's like, oh, what would people around us think? A lot of them, especially at that age, 16 to 18, you don't want to show that you're from an indigenous a, 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 a region because it equals to, you know, being ignorant, equals to being, you know, backwards and so on. All these derogatory terms that I've always used. So I say, you know what, I got to stop this, you know, I am tech. I am an indigenous person. I can speak Spanish and I can speak English and I can speak Portuguese. I got it through my own activism, through my writings. And that's how I started writing in Mixtec, in Spanish, and in English. I attended a course all the way in California, I drove all the way down to learn how to teach other people how to write the language, right? Many people might say that um, my struggle, it's it's sort of a lost cause. I don't think so. I see young people and I see hope. I see Facebook writings in mixtech. I see songs in mixtech. I see young people reclaiming their identity. I see young people reaffirming their identity of, yes, I live in the United States, in Oregon. I also speak Spanish, but also my roots it's from the mixedic region that's a beautiful thing it's i have all these beautiful things from three different worlds in one you know and that's really drives me to write and to give me the sense of this is what i need to do
0: so one last question you mentioned that you were part of a writing group called los porteños yes. um, here in oregon Yes. could you talk a little bit about being part of a writing group and how that has helped you develop as a writer?
1: Yes. Um, uh, Los Porteños, which means sort of people from the port, right, of Portland, right, (laughs) people from the land of the ports. But uh, the Porteños, it's a writing group that started uh, um, many years ago. I don't know exactly, I'm I'm brand new, sort of, uh, but um, This group is a a, a group that uh, supports and gives feedback each other and shares resources. Uh, It's composed by not only Latinos, but people from the Northwest, from different backgrounds. And uh, how this uh, group has helped me is that they have provided a platform where I can have the confidence to share my work and have the honest confidence to receive feedback from other writers that we have amazing writers you mentioned Cindy Williams, you mentioned Suzanne, you mentioned Mr. Joaquin, you mentioned Mr. Alberto Moreno, they are amazing writers and that's what I get also my inspiration from, from people that think and feel like me but also that they provide feedback and when they don't like something they'll say it and that's a beautiful thing because you can also have the confidence of say this is a beautiful thing this is what you need to add how about this have you thought about this have you read this or and so on and that it's a circle of sharing and supporting each other
0: could you tell us for people who are interested out there how they can find out more about your work
1: yeah yeah they can uh, pretty much find some of my um, works on facebook so it's facebook.com dot com slash o c t a v s victor i a n o dot m as in mary e r e c i a s
0: if you're just joining us this is KBU community radio. FM in Portland, or online at KBOO.FM. This is Writers on Craft, a show about writing and the creative process. I'm your host, Suzanne Legrand, and today, my next guest is Jennifer Egan. Jennifer Egan won this year's Pulitzer Prize for fiction for her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad.
2: For those of us who haven't yet read the book, what's it about? It follows a music producer named Benny Salazar and his assistant named Sasha forward and backward through both of their lives and also a number of other peripheral characters. It covers about 50 years and it's very much about time and music.
0: Why not just tell a story with one character in a simple beginning,
2: middle and end? This story is very, it's full of a lot of lateral moves. There there are a lot of moments where we see someone out of the corner of our eye, they seem sort of intriguing, and then boom, in the next chapter we're in that person's world. I don't know how I would possibly have done that in a more centrally oriented or conventional way. And in fact, I should mention, I had two big inspirations for this book. One was Proust, his novel In Search of Lost Time which actually also has a very sprawling form. But the other was the television series The Sopranos, which I watched with great joy over the same years I was reading Proust. And one thing I loved about The Sopranos was how polyphonic it was. There were so many stories we were following. Sometimes we were barely paying attention to Tony. And I loved the idea of trying to capture that sense of all kinds of dramas happening simultaneously and also of time passing. What is
0: it that you think resonates with readers with respect to this book in particular?
2: I have been blindsided by how much people have liked this. I never, ever would have expected it. It seemed like a quirky enough book that it was impossible to imagine it finding a wide readership, and particularly because it's so preoccupied with time and change, I couldn't imagine anyone under 40 really wanting to read it, which was very much how I felt about Proust. I tried Proust in my early 20s, and I was, I mean, the obsessive love stuff, okay. Swan and Odette, absolutely, but all the nostalgia. I was so bored. But I I have a thought that young people now are much more aware of and interested in time passing than I was when I was in my early 20s. And I think, again, the answer may be technological. The technology is changing so fast that if you ask someone who's 20 or 21 whether they feel like they're in the same boat technologically as a 14 or 15-year-old, you will hear no the 14 and 15 year olds grew up with whatever it is but we only came to it later whether it's i got a cell phone in college and now kids get them at 10 or i got on facebook in college and now kids are on them at 12 so i i wonder whether there's a kind of there's such a sense of acceleration that even people in their early 20s are are interested in a book about time and change and then of course i guess the music element I think there's one other reason the book might have landed with readers, which I can't really say that I anticipated, which is that many people have said it seems to mimic the experience of online activity. You're interested in something, and then the next minute, boom, you're in the middle of that. Then in that world, you get curious about something else, and then boom, you're in the middle of that. That's kind of how the book is structured, and I wasn't thinking of the analogy of online experience, but it may be that one reason that structure appealed to me and felt timely was because in some sense, I unconsciously realized that it seemed to capture that kind of experience.
0: For those of you just joining us, this is KBU Community Radio. I'm Suzanne LeGrand, talking today to Jennifer Egan, national best-selling author and the 2011 Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction. What made you want to become a writer?
2: Well, I didn't want to be a writer as a kid. I was I was kind of a sciencey kid. I wanted to be a doctor and then later an archaeologist. I guess I was already moving toward writing in a way with that transition because it was, you know, I think as a the thought of being a doctor was about the mystery of the body and and I loved honestly the thought of cutting people open and just seeing what was going on in there. <laughs> well, you know in a certain way that's a good analogy for writing <laughs> minus the blood and the power tools. So, uh, but I I had kind of a revelation about writing when I was 18. I took a year off between high school and college, and I saved up money working in a cafe, and I went to Europe with a backpack. And I was from Calif- well from California, so very far from Europe. It's a long way to go. Huge time change. And again, technology, you know, no cell phones, no internet, you know, very hard to communicate with my parents. So during that time of huge isolation, which lasted maybe two and a half months, but it felt like a really long time, I somehow realized how important writing was to me. It was a hard trip, but I wrote in my journal constantly, and I think I somehow became aware of something that that had always been true, but I just hadn't known it, which was that writing was what organized the, the world for me and gave it meaning. So
0: from that point, how did you learn how to write fiction?
2: You know, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't get an MFA, which a lot of people do. I, I wrote in college, but I wasn't really studying writing. But I did, I did. you know, I took a couple of workshops. And I, I worked with a playwright named Romulus Linney, who was a wonderful mentor for me as in, in fiction. Um, I think I really learned by trial and error. And I guess the big question with fiction writing is because everyone starts out writing in a pretty familiar way. You know, we're just essentially echoing things that we've read. And the question is, when and how do you start moving beyond that into something that's really distinct? It's a hard question to answer. I I don't really know how and when I I started doing that. I think I was kind of a late bloomer. I was not a star, you know, really ever as a younger person. Um, I think my work was pretty familiar um, early on and and remained so for a while. But I guess, you know, I, I think in some way the key is always to find a way to both recognize one's process, which is so different for every person. No one can tell you how to do it. You know, for me, it's recognizing that I write by hand and just, you know, accepting that instead of trying to fight it. And also, in some way, learning to trust one's instincts and figure out how to know a good idea from a dull one. I feel like I feel it almost viscerally. I feel sort of worn out at the thought of writing a story that feels familiar. And I, I guess I, I try to I assume that this, what is interesting and exciting and, and curious to me will be for readers. But there's something deeply mysterious about the process and that I think is hard for any of us to explain.
0: You have lately and uh, experienced screen if at any point you experienced setback.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, for every step forward, it feels like there was a half step backward. So, for example, I sold my first story to The New Yorker when I was, or I published my first story in The New Yorker, I was 26. So you would think, oh my God. And it was great. I mean, it really reassured my father, who I think had grave doubts about what on earth I was doing with my life, because I was basically doing menial jobs living in New York and then, you know, telling him I'm writing. Well, what parent wants to hear that? You know, he was a cop's son. He was, he had pulled himself up by the bootstraps to be a lawyer and he was not digging this, I'm writing stuff. So, it was useful for that kind of legitimacy, but what it actually led to was a bunch of agents contacting me because they'd never heard of me, and there I had a story. But in fact, the story was much better than anything else I had written. So when I showed people the other work that I had, they were disappointed. And I really absorbed that disappointment, and I thought, oh my God, you know, I'll never top this. It really hung over me for a long time. Um, the first novel that I wrote, which was actually before this, was an absolute disaster. I moved to New York, and I started sending it around, and anyone I sent it to became unreachable. They, they, No one knew what to say. I mean, they just hid from me. You couldn't get away with that now, but again, this was pre-cell phone. When I finished my first novel, finally, and sold it, um, my agent had a huge auction and hoped that lots of people would bid, sent it to, I don't know, 16 or 17 publishers. Every single one of them rejected it, except for one. One person wanted it. and But for the six weeks before that auction, every day there would be another, you know, this is, sorry, this isn't for us. So I was I was really scared and, and felt that the book was really maybe terrible. Um, I was, I felt, I mean, I was so lucky to sell it and, you know, ended up doing a lot more work on it. But, you know, so I guess each one of those, you know, in the moment seemed like huge setbacks. Looking back, I can say, look, you were moving forward. It's a bumpy road, you know, just keep going. That's what I would say to anyone in that position. But it it always felt to me like I was kind of fighting, fighting to stay afloat, honestly.
0: So what enabled you to keep going?
2: That is a big question to me as well, because I had this conviction that I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't have confidence that I was any good. I never have that much confidence. I think, you know, I always doubt that I can pull off whatever I'm doing, and that seems to work for me. I'm not sure I want that to change. I think it makes me try even harder, maybe. But the the period that I really wonder about was when I first moved to New York, because I had no family there, no support systems. I'd been living in England for two years, so my friends had all you know, been two years in their jobs after college and they had lives and I really didn't. Uh, I was temping and I had that sort of desperate, clingy quality that (laughs) no one wants to deal with in a person. (laughs) And, you know, I had this novel that I I hoped was really good and learned that it was just a complete disaster. I wonder what kept me going for those couple of years, you know. Was it a conviction that I I was good? No, because not only was I not a, confident type, but I actually wasn't good. I mean, my writing was terrible at that point. I, there's a certain dogged aspect to my personality that that is really, um, you know, a strong a strong side of me. Like I really, really don't give up, possibly to a fault. Um, I, I and, and the deeper in the hole I am, the more determined I get to dig myself out. I, I, I guess maybe my thinking was, to the extent that I was even thinking, because mostly I was just frazzled and trying to figure out how to make money and support myself in New York, I think I was thinking, you know, if I'm going to quit, I'm not quitting like this. I'm going to get to a better position and then I'll decide what to do, but I'm not going to just, you know, fall apart here. So I just kept going.
0: How do you get perspective on your own work?
2: Well, after my experience of writing this book in England that everyone hated and which no one had seen any of, um, I was determined never to be in that position again. So I am part of a writing group. And I rely on them very heavily. We only read aloud, interestingly. We don't look at anything on a page. You know, Everyone works. Everyone's busy. The minute you have homework, it turns into a different kind of thing. So we just have the experience sitting all together. We read our work aloud to each other. We bring in work that's really raw. And when, when I bring in work in that state, my only question really is just, is this alive or not? Because sometimes I really don't know and often i know just by the feeling of reading it to them and kind of feeling the energy in the room it's different from reading it alone to myself i also bring in more finished work where i i know that i'm kind of on the right track maybe i've brought it in before but there's this or that that doesn't feel quite right and i want i want some attention to those you know, to those details, bringing it all up a notch. But basically, you know, I'm very i I need outside perspective. I don't trust myself to know. Often, the fact that I'm having fun is a good sign, but sometimes I go really awry. You know, I'll bring in something. I think they're going to love it. I'm waiting to blow them out of their chairs, and I can just feel it sinking as I read. And then sometimes I come in really quaking in my boots, thinking, "Oh, this is going to be terrible. and and it's really alive. So, and I think reading aloud is also great because, you know, storytelling did begin as an oral tradition, and the the actual sounds and rhythm of the language are a very important part of what makes a piece of fiction work.
0: How do you find readers that you can trust to give you that feedback?
2: That's tricky. Do you want people who are essentially on your side? It's dangerous to let someone who isn't really deeply into your writing life. But you really want people who are going to give you the honest scoop, because just hearing, I love it, I love it, is no help. You're going to find out eventually (laughs) whether it works or not. You might as well find out in time to actually fix it. I think that even criticism that's that's not helpful, and and even criticism that's mean-spirited, which is the last thing anyone wants, I don't think it can really hurt us that badly. I think there's a a danger of being a little too precious about ourselves and our work. And I basically feel like, you know, if it's strong and you're strong about it, you will feel what what you should listen to and what you should ignore. And even within our writing group, you know, we're not always right. We don't always agree. There will sometimes be big debates within the group about whether something is working or not. That's okay. It's up to the writer. I think our own instincts tell us what we should listen to and what not.
0: One last question. What do you think you've learned about writing since you began writing a diary in Europe?
2: I think that the, the fundamental thing is really to entertain the reader i mean i feel like for all of the ambition and the goal i have of infusing my writing with ideas and and having a strong girding of you know intellectual inquiry you know in the end i write as a kind of escapism and i read as a kind of escapism and i feel like i'm i think i'm more aware of that than i ever was as my work starts to become more challenging formally, maybe. I mean, I've got a chapter of this book that's in PowerPoint, but it's interesting because a number of people have said to me, the PowerPoint chapter is the one that makes them cry. The thing that was so great about PowerPoint is that it's so cold and so corporate that it let me tell a story that is very sweet and simple that would have been too sentimental if I had tried to write it as a conventional story. I can't even imagine. Not enough happens. It would have been impossible. But this difficult sort of structurally girded cold corporate envelope let me slip in this very sweet story and you know in the end that's always the goal is just to find a way to render up our experience in a way that's meaningful and honestly fun I mean the great books are fun it should all be fun I'm a huge believer in that Thank you so much for joining us today on Writers on Craft. Thank you.
0: This is Kabu Community Radio, 90.7 FM, or online at kboo.fm. I'm your host, Suzanne Legrand. This has been Writers on Craft, a show about writing and the creative process. For more interviews with writers about the craft of writing and the creative process, you can go to www writersoncraft.com or you can go to the KBU website kBU.fm slash writersoncraft